turn to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to be reading verses 44 through 46. Matthew 13. If you're using a pew Bible, you're on page 691. And just public service announcement. If we're ever in here and we're opening the book of the Bible and you're not sure where it is, feel free to use the table of contents. If anybody judges you, that's on them, not you. All right? So, Matthew 13, especially when we get to the minor prophets, you all. Nothing makes a pastor more nervous than being in, like, a Bible study. And they're like, all right, we're going to uh, Habakkuk. You're like, I should know this, right? It's freedom. Table of contents is there for a reason. Matthew 13, beginning in verse 44. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had, and he bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything that he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What is something worth? What is something worth? How do you determine the value of a thing or an experience of some sort? As I've thought about this question this week, it's um, occurred to me that something is worth what someone else is willing to give to obtain it. So something is worth whatever someone else is willing to give to obtain it. And this week I was... I usually, every, this is where I get my news. I'll just tell you, learn more about your pastor. I look at the front page of the Wall Street Journal digital version. I just scan to stay somewhat, you know, in tune with what's happening in the world. And two times this week, I heard about these pieces of art that were sold for what I consider to be obscene amounts of money. Now, the first one was from a guy that we've all at least heard of, Picasso. Um, The title of the painting is Woman with a Watch. Woman with a Watch. Anyone know what that went for? $139 million. $139 million. What is that painting worth? Well, for that person, it's worth $139 million. And I'm no art critic. Um, I'm not refined as it comes to understanding value of things like that, I will admit. But it looked kind of to me like something May might bring home from the Early Learning Center, you know? Like we cut up some shapes and we kind of taped it together and like, okay, $139 million. But I'm not the target market for that, right? There are people who know better than me, who are more cultured, who get it, would gladly play $139 million. The other one that I read about was from a guy that is at least less well-known to me, Cezanne. Vince actually told me how to pronounce that correctly so I didn't embarrass myself in front of you this morning. Cezanne. This one was called a jar, let me look at my notes to get it right, fruits and a jar of ginger. How much do you think this one went for? A measly $39 million. You know, like, I'm feeling really bad if I'm Cezanne's family, you know? Just $39 million. And this one was more attractive to me, I thought. But it looked like something like if I came to your house for 
a garage sale, I would not look at it twice. Probably wouldn't have given $39 for it, much less $39 million for it. But for somebody, that painting was worth $39 million. And they were willing to part with that amount of money in order to acquire this possession. Now, you and I do this all the time in life. We, we think about the value of whatever it is that requires our resources, be it our time or our talent or our treasures, and we do this math, we make these computations, not probably with pens and paper, but we do it. And is this experience, is this thing that I'm going to acquire worth this transfer of funds? And sometimes we begrudgingly transfer the funds, and sometimes in our joy, we transfer the funds to have whatever this thing is. Jesus tells these two stories about identifying the value of the kingdom of heaven and how people responded to the value of, I would say, Christ and his kingdom. The first story is of a guy who found a treasure hidden in a field. Now, think back before we were so sophisticated and all of us had bank accounts and you had money. Some of you maybe even have relatives who already have money dug in a hole in a jar in their backyard. Only about that, make sure you remember where you put it, okay? Like, don't forget that part. But think that way. They had this treasure, and they hid it in a field so that it wouldn't be taken by anyone else. This person stumbles across it. Maybe they forgot it for generations. Maybe they didn't know where it was. This person finds it, and he's like, I see it. I see the value of this thing. Maybe it's like one of those paintings. The person had the eyes to see it. And he said, I know what I got to do. I got to cover it up. I got to go sell everything that I own. Remember that part of the story. I got to sell everything, liquidate, because whatever I have, it's not nearly as valuable as this thing. So he gets it. The other one is a merchant. So think of someone riding on a boat going to these different cities looking for something valuable, and he finds a pearl that Jesus describes as a pearl of great price. So just think in this day, pearl would be whatever you would think of as the most valuable thing that we have access to now. Like it was the gold standard, so to speak, of value. And he found this pearl of great value, and so what did he do? Same thing, sold everything he had so that he might get this thing of surpassing worth now, how many of you feel somewhat nervous at the thought of selling everything that you own to buy something? It makes you nervous, doesn't it? What if the Saison was like a fake? Or what if the Picasso actually wasn't a Picasso, but a third grader made it, right? And you're like, you sold everything to get this thing, and you're like, it wasn't worth it in the end. And most of us would like to be more measured in our approach to investing. I'll give a little bit to get something that I think is valuable. But the idea of giving everything that you have in order to get this thing of value kind of goes against this tendency inside of us to make sure that we hold back, that we're secure. We're not really used to going joyfully all in to obtain something. Um, or we want a deal. How many of you like a deal? You like to get way more than what it's, you want to pay way less than what it's actually worth. 
Um, I read a story by a guy named Klein Snodgrass, <clears throat> New Testament theologian, thank you very much, Klein Snodgrass, who's written a book on parables. And he tells the story of a guy who went to a garage sale type event, and he found this box, imagine a shoebox, and it's just got like rocks in it, right, some prettier than others, and then there's potato-sized rock in there. And the sign in front says $15 a piece. And he walks up to it, and he picks up this thing, and he asks the guy who's in charge of the sale, what do you want for this? He said, tell you what, I'll take 10 instead of 15. It's not as pretty as the rest of the rocks in there. And the guy knew what he had, and he walked out, and it was this extremely valuable um, gem. That hole that was worth $2.5 million cut up, it was worth like $10.5 million. And you and I are kind of those type people more often than not, or at least I am. You don't want to invite me to your fundraiser like silent auction. You know, I'm the guy that shows up like, where are the deals here? You know? Whereas if you're doing a silent auction, you need people who are ready to spend money, correct? Like what you get is kind of irrelevant. You're here to support the cause. And then you got misers like me like, huh, what is that really worth? I'm going to steal this from you. But that's kind of how our hearts are wired usually. I want to give as little as I can to get as much as I can. And the idea of going all in makes me nervous. And Jesus comes to us in this parable. And I think he's describing to us the way that, that Christianity works, actually. That you and I, as we come to understand who Christ is and all that God has done for us in Christ, that if we have eyes to see him as valuable as he is, and if we have eyes to understand God's advancing kingdom in this world as more important, more valuable than anything else in all the world, that the only appropriate response in that moment is for you to yield everything that you are and everything that you have to further God's kingdom on the earth. That Christianity at points should feel, it should make you feel nervous sometimes. And there should be something distinct and unique in your value system as compared to those who are not followers of Jesus, such that you are yielding your life and your plans and your purposes towards God's plans and purposes in this world. And if you are wrong, you ought to be nervous that you are making a really terrible investment. Remember how Paul said that if the resurrection is not true, what was true of him? He was of all people most to be pitied, right? Paul had, Paul had gone all in to seek Christ and his kingdom. And he said Christians ought to be the kind of people that if the resurrection weren't true, then we made a grave miscalculation and invested our lives in something that ultimately wasn't worth it. But Paul believed in the resurrection of Christ. There's that wonderful passage in Philippians chapter 3 when Paul is talking about his life. And Paul says, like, my life was pretty impressive, and I was pretty awesome in the eyes of the world. Like, I had, a, I had done pretty well for myself, and I had achieved a lot of prominence. But once he met Christ, like, once he understood who Jesus is and the importance of what God has done in Christ, he totally valued things differently after that point. And this is what he says. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, having a righteous, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Paul is just saying, before I met Jesus, I thought my value and my worth, I thought all of it was wrapped up in who I was, the family I was born into, all the things that I had accomplished. But then I came to know Christ, and I figured out that in light of or in comparison to Jesus, everything I had to that point paled in comparison. It now, in light of Jesus, is rubbish to me. And so he leveraged all of his life for other people to know and experience the abundant eternal life that comes only through faith in Jesus. I'm going to tell you one of the downsides of pastoral ministry. I spend a lot of time with people who are really close to dying. I spend a lot of time with people who are really close to dying. And that can be heavy some days. It can be sobering. But one of the gifts of that part of ministry is that I often see people at a point in their life where what they've acquired or what they've accomplished or however impressive they were in the eyes of the world in that moment doesn't really matter, correct? Like in that moment, death has a way of clarifying what's valuable. It has a way of clarifying what lasts for eternity. And when you and I get to that point, if we have some disease or whatever that looks like, really there are moments where it doesn't matter who you are or what you have, it can't save you from what's before you. Or all the stuff that you've acquired in life really doesn't matter to you anymore in the light of eternity. How many of you have lots of stuff at your home? I think I do. One day, my poor children are going to have to throw it all away. <laughs> like there's that practice of like, why did dad think this was valuable? Why do we still have this thing? Right? And as I think about myself and my own discipleship and my own pursuit of living for things that matter in this life, and as I look into each of your faces, oftentimes week in and week out, I feel this burden and this responsibility to say, all right, we all know how this is going to end. And not allow you or not allow me to live my life as if all the stuff that I'm accumulating or the impressive things that I accomplish, that any of that ultimately matters compared to the surpassing value of who Jesus is and what God's done for him, so that then we start to leverage all that God's entrusted to us to further his kingdom so that more people might discover the value of who Jesus is, that they might discover the eternal and abundant life that you can only find ultimately in him. And you all, we are surrounded by people every day surrounded by people every day who either they haven't heard and responded to the gospel in faith such that it's transformed their lives 
or they're not yet followers of Jesus, or they're just kind of living their lives under the oppression or the assumption that if I get enough or accomplish enough or become enough or fill in the blank, then I'll be validated in my self-existence. And here's the truth of the matter. Um, There never will be enough of fill in the blank. Never. And the only hope for abundance in this life and the life to come is to find that in Jesus Christ. And God's given us that message to proclaim with joy to everybody around us. And so then the question is, ultimately, do we value Christ as we should? Will we leverage what God's entrusted to us for what is eternally important? Or will we just kind of waste it on stuff or experiences or things that ultimately won't fully matter in eternity? So I'm asking the Lord to help me grow in my value um, for who Christ is. Help me to understand and appreciate the kingdom among us and to be more faithful not to waste what he's entrusted to me in things that are just kind of trophies and trinkets and to instead invest it in his eternal purposes in this world, believing that ultimately that's going to make me more joyful than anything else can. And I can't just lastly in wrapping up say anything about this parable without ultimately seeing the good news of the gospel in this. Jesus Christ laid aside everything in order to draw near and to require us. And the thing that's different in the parable and in what Jesus did is that that ultimately you and I, we weren't impressive to him. We didn't have our act together. We didn't earn his love or his sacrifice. Paul says in Romans 5, somebody can understand giving up their life for a good person. But nobody will die for someone who's not a good person. But God showed his love for us in Christ and that even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That Christ laid aside things that were eternally valuable in order to have us in spite of the fact that we weren't worthy of it. We didn't earn it. And he did it for the joy that was set before him. And so I'm praying that I would become more like Christ that Lord would use me to further his kingdom in joy and to leverage what he's entrusted to me for his good purposes in this world. I'd like you to pray with me. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the many ways that you show your goodness and your grace and your kindness to us in the person and the work of Jesus. And we pray that you would help us to continue to, to be able to see you as valuable as you are as your kingdom as valuable as it is, Lord, and that you would move us to do things that others might think crazy, that others might not understand as we leverage what you've entrusted to us for that which we think is eternally valuable. We offer this prayer in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we are going to follow sermon by celebrating Lord's Supper together. And Lord's Supper is a gift that God has given his church to remember the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we proclaim his death until he comes again. And I think that this meal should be for us a 
a celebration and a moment of joy to proclaim the good news of all that God's done for us in Jesus. And what I mean by that is, um, if you think that you're ever going to be good enough to celebrate the Lord's Supper or come to his table, the reality of it is that you will never be good enough. Um, It is an opportunity for us to spend time in prayer and reflection, to confess our sin, but ultimately the Lord's Supper ought to turn your eyes to Jesus more than to yourself. And to come to his table knowing that he welcomes sinners by grace through faith in what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. You want you to know that everybody um, who's here, you don't have to be a member at Mount Brook Baptist Church to celebrate Lord's Supper. If you're here and you're a follower of Christ, we invite you to come and celebrate with us. I'm going to read this passage from 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul gives instructions about Lord's Supper. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then in Luke's gospel, Luke describes... Um, Jesus celebrating the Lord's Supper with his disciples with these words. When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. In just a moment, I'm going to pray for us, ask the Lord to bless these elements in our celebration of Lord's Supper. And then we're going to have associate deacons come, and in the contemporary service, We celebrate the Lord's Supper using a practice called intinction, which just means you get a piece of bread, you dip it into the juice, and you partake of the Lord's Supper of the elements there before you return to your seat. And so that's how we celebrate it here. There are also um, gluten-free elements in the middle if you want those, if you're more comfortable with that, or if you need that. So take that and celebrate that way. We will come via these aisles, the middle aisles, And then you'll go back to your seat um, via the outside aisles. I'm going to pray for us, and then we will celebrate the Lord's Supper. God, we thank you for the gift of this day. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came into the world, that you humbled yourself and took on flesh, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, so that we might have eternal and abundant life in you. Father, we confess to you that we are not worthy to celebrate at your table that each of us here is a sinner. And our only hope of redemption and salvation is through your grace, through faith in Jesus. And so, Lord, even as we celebrate this meal together, we pray that it would be um, a solemn and a holy and a joyful time as we celebrate the relationship and the peace that we have with you and with each other.